0: that's where a lot of people go go bad with a pup they throw them in a pen and just throw feed to them every day and to me you got to make a connection with them some guys don't agree with me on that but i think you got to have a good bond with a dog It's real simple, I think, with a pup, and a lot of people don't understand it. Is when a pup is ready to start, it will start. You can't force a pup to start, and you can't force a pup to treat. It has to do it on its own. Hey guys, hope you've all been doing well. I know it's been a while since I made one of these, but I've been very busy on the road, travel around to hunts. If you've been following me on my other social media pages, you would have seen I went to South Carolina to do some squirrel hunting. So in this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about my hunting trip down in South Carolina, as well as some of the events that I got coming up that I got planned out since the last time I made one of these episodes. A lot's happened since the last time I made one of these, so... I'll share all that stuff with you guys and kind of give you an update where I'm at with some of the events I'll be covering and some of my upcoming content for my YouTube channel and my other social media pages. At the end, there'll also be a Q&A portion where a lot of you guys submitted questions and I'll get those answered for you. So to start off talking about my South Carolina trip, that was the last weekend of February and I ended up riding down with Alan Franklin and Garrick Shad and it's about five hours of driving for me to get to Alan's house and then another seven and a half or so from there to Newberry, South Carolina where we stayed. And I ended up staying with Danny Nichols and his family, and I appreciate him letting me stay down there. He has a really nice place. And we ended up leaving Wednesday morning really early and got there Wednesday night. And then that night, I went to bed and got some sleep, and then we got up Thursday morning and did some pleasure hunting. And that's also when I made my last episode of my Huntsman Spotlight series, where I interviewed Alan Franklin to talk about his Thunder line of mountain curs. And Alan's actually where I got jacks from when he was a puppy, and Alan's won over 20 world championships with his line of dogs. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, you can check that out on my YouTube channel. Just look up Houndsman Spotlight, Alan Franklin, and it should bring it up. So we did some hunting down there that Thursday and got some really good food. They always have good food down there. And then Friday was the UKC Dog of the Year hunt for the Kerr Squirrel Dogs. And I went along on that cast after we did some more pleasure hunting that morning. So while we were pleasure hunting and finishing up the filming of my Houndsman Spotlight series episode, they actually did the first round of the Dog of the Year hunt. And I ended up going on just a final cast and made a video of that. So if you want to see the UKC Dog of the Year Kerr Squirrel Hunt, that's also on my YouTube channel. And that was on that Thursday I was down there. And then that night we went and got some more food and did some more pleasure hunting. And this is just going to be a brief overview of that whole trip. But I pretty much documented the entire thing in three video parts. And like I said, part one was a Hounds and Spotlight series. Part two was a UKC Kerr Squirrel Hunt And then that Saturday, the last day we're there, is the UKC World Kerr Squirrel Hunt. And that Saturday, I ended up going out on a cast in the morning. And then after that morning cast, we went back to the club and they had the UKC Kerr World Bench Show. That's also in the video. Then after that, we went and checked out Walker Days because that was actually only about 20 minutes from the club that we were at. So I went around and met some of you guys and it was neat seeing you in person and putting some faces to your names and seeing all the vendors and all the people there. It was really neat. That's also in the video if you want to get a chance to check out Walker Days, that's in there too. And then after we checked out Walker Days, we went back and headed out on the evening cast for that night's hunt. And both of Alan Franklin's dogs that he had entered in the hunt, he was handling Trickster, and he had someone else handling Duck Creek Razor. Both those dogs got cast wins early on in the morning and then ended up falling short in the late round. So after that, we decided to get some dinner and head home. We ended up leaving that night about 10 o'clock at night Saturday, and we got back to Allen's at like 5 in the morning, I think it was, and then from there I drove all the way home and was pretty tired afterwards. I did include at the end of that video the UKC World Squirrel Hunt. I included all the results of that hunt at the end of that video, that way you guys could see how the hunt turned out even though we had to leave early, but Allen's dog Trickster actually finished 10th in the hunt, and he's only a year old, so he has a pretty bright future ahead of him. And that pretty much wraps up my South Carolina trip. And like I said, if any of that sounds interesting, you can see all of it on my YouTube channel. And it looks a lot better in video format than it does on podcasts because you actually get to see the hunt and hear the dogs and kind of experience it with me. So now I'll get into some of the other news coming up, some of the events I'll be covering, and just some pretty exciting stuff coming your way. The first event I'll discuss coming up is the UKC World Feist Hunt. And That's in Hardin, Kentucky, so I'll be going down there for UKC and making some videos on my YouTube channel as well as making videos for their YouTube channel and some stuff for their Instagram page, so you'll want to check that out as well. I actually don't have any videos or pictures of feists on any of my content, so this will be a first for me, and it'll be really neat to see some really good feist trees, some squirrels. So If that sounds interesting, make sure you check out UKC's page on YouTube and also their Instagram page, UKC Hunting Ops and also my Instagram and my YouTube channel, Stark Outdoors. So that's just one of many events coming up this spring. The next event I'll do will be a blue tick hunt that's actually only a few hours from my house. It's actually a Dave Dean, Ed Mead tribute hunt. In that event, there's all sorts of different events. They're having field trials, bench shows, water races, and of course, night hunts. So I'll be going there and filming that event and try and get as much of that captured for you as I can so you can feel like you're actually at the event. And that's also going to be the next episode of my Houndsman Spotlight series. I'm going to be interviewing Ed Mead. And if any of Dave Dean's family members are there, I'll probably interview them if they want to be on camera. But I'm going to be filming that hunt, and that should be a really good time. And like I said, that's the next episode of my Houndsman Spotlight series. I'm going to be interviewing Ed Mead and just showing you guys all that stuff and giving you some of the history behind the blue ticks. And mostly those blue ticks there in that tribute hunt. Ed Mead had the jet line of blue ticks and Dave Dean had the hammer and the spare time spanky dog. And if you know anything about blue ticks, you've heard of all those dogs that are really well known in the blue tick world. And Ed Mead's been training and raising dogs his whole life, so there's going to be a lot of information in that video and I'm sure you guys will enjoy it and I know I'll love making it. And that hunt is actually April 7th through the 9th, so I'm pretty excited about that event and making videos and kind of preserving those memories for everyone involved. And it should be a good time and I hope to see some of you guys there. And then kind of along the same line of interviewing legends i was actually contacted by the Treeing walker breeders association and they want me to go to walker days this year and film an interview that they're going to do this interview is called a conversation with Treeing walker legends and the people they're interviewing are actually going to be dick brothers and charlie butler and if you've been around the walker breed very much you've heard those names they're very well known they've been doing it for a really long time and had a lot of success with some pretty good walker dogs So that'll be really interesting to bring to you guys, and like I said, I'll be filming that interview, and if you want to see that interview, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, Clayton Stark is the name of it, and if you search Stark Outdoors, that'll bring it up as well. So you'll get to see the interview portion with Dick Brothers and Charlie Butler, I'll also be filming the rest of the event, and other things I have going on there at the grounds, and I'll also be going out in a cast to show you guys what the dogs do in the woods. And the interview is actually taking place on April 15th. And then the following weekend in April, which is April 22nd and 23rd, we have the UKC Tournament of Champions. And this is actually UKC's largest paying event with a total purse payout of $250,000. And it's an event you have to qualify to hunt in. And this year they had over 1,300 dogs qualify and enter this hunt. And I'm actually going to be a media rep for UKC going out on the cast with the dogs and reporting back to the UKC people in the studio at the grounds as they do their live feed on YouTube. So if you like my content, and my videos, make sure you check out their live stream on their YouTube channel because I'll actually be out on the cast sending them updates, let them know kind of what's going on in the woods in real time. I'll also have my camera equipment with me, taking pictures and videos for you guys as well so you can kind of experience it along with me. And they actually live streamed the event last year and that's on YouTube as well. I watched that. It's a really professional, really well run thing. And you can tell just by looking at the overall presentation, the UKC really does a good job with that at presenting coon hunting for as amazing as it is and really do a good job at promoting the sport. So if you didn't see that live stream and you're not sure what the UKC Tournament of Champions is, I encourage you to check out their YouTube channel on their live stream from last year when they covered the Tournament of Champions. It was really neat to see because they do a play-by-play in like a studio setup where the hunt's at and they give you updates in real time. And then they also have a media rep, which this year is going to be me, out in the field sending them videos and updates so they can show you actually what's happening as it happens, which is pretty neat. So my spring is booked pretty much full, and I'm looking forward to all these events. And just to give you guys a recap, I got the UKC World Feist Hunt coming up in Hardin, Kentucky. And then April 7th, 8th and 9th, I have the Ed Mead Dave Dean Tribute Hunt with the Blue Ticks. And then April 15th, I'll be talking to Dick Brothers and Charlie Butler at Walker Days and going along on some casts that night as well. And then that following weekend, I'll be at the Tournament of Champions bringing you guys my coverage of the event and hopefully bringing you guys along with me and you can see me on their live stream as well. So I'm pretty excited about these events coming up because I actually get to go hunt with and talk to some of the best breeders and handlers that have ever lived. It's been coon hunting for an extremely long time and have lots of knowledge to share with us all. So that'll be really great for all of us to see and kind of learn and just get to know those guys and preserve the memories while we still can. And then also get to be a part of the Tournament of Champions is really special as well because you get to see some of the top current dogs as well as maybe some young up-and-coming dogs that are competing at an extremely high level. So there's a lot of really exciting things coming in the next few months, and I'm really excited to share all that stuff with you. And now I'll begin the Q&A portion of the podcast where I take listener submitted questions and give you my opinion and try and get your questions answered. The first question comes from Wesley Smelser on Facebook, and I hope I'm saying your name right, and if I'm not, I'm sorry. His question is, what age do I break a pup from possum and how is the best way to do that? And personally, if I have a pup, what is a true pup that occasionally trees a possum, I'm not going to do a whole lot to correct them other than just pull them off the tree and kind of tell them no and scold them because they're just learning and figuring it out. And I really don't want to overcorrect them and teach them that maybe barking at a tree is bad and treeing things is bad. So you really got to take it on a case-by-case basis on how old the dog is and how much experience it has. If it's a pup that's just learning the tree, I wouldn't get too upset about it because once you start knocking coon out to it and correcting it for possum, it's pretty easy to get reversed. Now, if it was like a 3- or 4-year-old dog, which is not a pup anymore, that's a different story. But your question was, what age I start worrying about it. And it's not really an age thing. It's more of an experience because all dogs start at different times. So if a dog is starting at like a year old, and it's been like five or six months and it's tree and coon and it's getting pretty consistent. And then it starts tree and possums. I'd really start work working on them. And that goes back to having a really good bond with your dog. You can just do things like tone them or use stimulation on your collar if you want to. Or, or in my experience, just basically pulling them off the tree and then letting them know that that's not what you want them to do. They usually pick up on that pretty quick, but I don't have a ton of experience with dogs treeing possums. And even if they do, I wouldn't get too upset about it. Like I said, once you start treeing coon, and you can start rewarding them with coon, getting fur in their mouth, and then correcting them for the possum. It usually just corrects itself over time. So like a lot of these answers on here, it really depends on the age and experience of the dog, but I hope that helped you. And if it didn't, or if you want some more explanation, just comment on one of my posts and let me know that you want to hear more from me or get more specific with your questions because... If it was like a certain age that I could go off of, or you could tell me how long you've been hunting it or what's it's doing, I could maybe give you a little clearer answer. But that's just kind of my general opinion on it. And then the next question actually comes from Wesley again on Facebook. He wants to know my opinion on hunting on a full moon. Is it better, worse, or doesn't matter? Um, many different things can apply here. Usually on full moons, you don't do the best. But in my experience, If you have a really, really good coon dog, the weather doesn't really matter. They're going to perform and do pretty well, but if you have pups or inexperienced dogs, it can usually be bad, and it just kind of raises the odds that something bad could go wrong in my experience, and it seems to be a common trend among people. They kind of talk about full moons and how a lot of bad things happen on full moons when they're hunting, whether that be running trash like deer, tree and possums, or just coon not moving very good in general. Those are all some issues you deal with, but... I usually just try and go out as much as I can. So if there's a night I can go hunting and there's a full moon, I'm not going to not go. And I've actually had pups actually tree coon on full moon. So it just really depends on you and your personal preferences. Like you mentioned in your previous question, if you have a dog that's starting to run off game or do things that you don't want them to do, I wouldn't hunt on full moons with that dog. I'd make sure I went on the absolute best nights with the best conditions. That way you can kind of navigate that dog's process and save you some headaches along the way. But I wouldn't steer away from hunting on a full moon just because I want to be out as much as I can and just kind of go from there. And I hope that helps you. And if it doesn't, like I said, same as before, just reach out to me and I'll elaborate further. The next question comes from Mark Brady on Facebook. And he wants to know, back in the day, if I remember what top dollar me and my dad got for hides, well, in my experience, the hides that I sold, the most I got was like, I think $17. And that was a long time ago. And they don't really even buy them anymore. It's not even worth really killing them. And I talked to my dad about this, and the most he got was actually in the 70s. He got, it was like 50-some dollars. He couldn't remember exactly. He thought he had the slip from it somewhere, and they're looking for it right now. But it was between 50 and $60 he got for a coon, and that was back in the 1970s. And if that sounds like a lot of money to you guys out there, Just understand that some of the coon you tree around here, like last year, I treed one that was 26 pounds, and that's not the biggest one I've seen treed around here. There are some really big ones that go between 25 and 30 pounds. So some of the coon around here are huge, and you could actually get a lot of money for them, but the fur market was actually worth something. So thank you for that question, Mark. Now the next question comes from Caleb Earhart. This question also comes from Facebook. He says, what's the most prestigious registry to win a world title in for squirrel?" I know you might be biased since you're shooting videos for UKC now. He hears people talk about how competition hunting has changed the way hounds have hunted over the years. What's some negative and positive ways dogs have evolved over the years? And then goes on to say, doing your hounds in the spotlight and working with top-notch houndsmen, what's something they all have in common and some that separates them from most hunters? So to answer the first portion of the question, he wants to know, what's the most prestigious registry to win a world title in for squirrel. And that's really hard to say, honestly, because just off the top of my head, we have the UKC, the NKC, the OMCBA, the WTDA, the USDC, the NSD, and I'm sure I'm missing some, but there is probably close to 10 registries for squirrel dogs. And it really comes down to just whatever event is held where the most dogs that are the top dogs in the country can attend. And when you get in a situation where there's like 10 registries for squirrel dogs, It really just comes down to the date and the ability of the people that have the top dogs in the country to get there. So there could be an event where it's maybe not as good, but that same registry could put on an event the following year and they could have the top 10 best dogs in the world there. So it really just depends. It's hard to just narrow it down to one. And if you're going to go off of money or payouts or like prizes, I wouldn't really say that's the most prestigious because at that point you're talking about who has the best prizes or payouts and stuff like that. And to me, if I'm going to say there's a prestigious title and a prestigious dog won a prestigious title, I'm going to think more along the lines of competition and the total number of dogs that competed against. And what it won as far as like material stuff, like money or trucks, that doesn't really factor in. What really factors into me is who they beat and if they're beating people on a consistent basis. And that's what's more prestigious to me than just necessarily money or trucks or trophies or anything like that. So, I really can't narrow it down to a single one. And with people that hunt squirrel dogs, I don't really know of many of them that focus on a single registry. If they have a stud dog that they want to promote, they usually hunt in multiple registries. I know guys that hunt in like four, four or five different registries and they just kind of travel and go to wherever's closest to their house and whatever fits their schedule and try and compete at the top hunts they can actually make it to. Because when there's that many registries, it's really hard to narrow it down and focus on one. Like I know guys right now that they hunted at the OMCBA hunt they just had, that were also at the UKC World Championship, that are also going to a big USDC hunt, and there's also an NSD hunt coming up. So it really just depends. So to me, I'd say the most prestigious title in this situation would be a dog that consistently wins world titles and maybe multiple registries in multiple areas. And then the second part to Caleb's question, he wants to know about how coonhounds have evolved over the years due to competition hunting, negatives and positives. And I'll start with the positives because if you follow my content at all, you know I don't really like being negative at all involving hunting with dogs or anything to do with our sport like that because I feel like there's already enough negativity out there from people who don't understand our way of life. So I try and just focus on the good stuff, and that's majority of what's going on anyways. But the positive things with coonhounds – I think, at least in my experience, it's a lot easier to get into it. More people are willing to share how they start and what they do and kind of just give you an insider look at it, especially with internet and social media. You really get a good feel of like what dogs are out there and you can see what they're doing. And now that people are doing live streams and people like me that go along on casts and do videos and do interviews, there are so many different ways to get good information from new people all the way to old people that have been doing it for 80 years so, But as far as coon hounds themselves, the biggest positive change I've seen is just I think they're more abundant and they're easier to get a hold of, at least in my experience. Some of the traits amongst certain line of dogs are really distinct because we have many generations of breeding and data to go off of to know what certain lines of dogs may reproduce or may not reproduce. So it just comes down to overall experience. And I myself don't competition hunt a whole lot. I mostly make videos and spectate and attend events. So I do get to see a lot of the top dogs hunt. And the ones I've seen hunt, the top dogs in the world, they're really consistent, they're accurate, and they have super loud mouths and they're built well. So basically a short answer, I'd give you some of the positive ways coon hounds have evolved over the years, at least with the ones I've been with. They seem to be very early starting, a lot of natural ability. They usually have really loud mouths and they're very accurate. And I'm in no way, shape or form talking down to the dogs of the past because obviously the good dogs of the day wouldn't exist if it wasn't for those good old dogs so that's just some of the positive ways I think coon hounds have evolved is at least the ones I've been with. And in my experience, and like I said, this is just my opinion with my experience that I've been on casts with some of the best dogs out there. They are really accurate, really loud. They're built well. They seem to be pretty smart. Then the next part, he wants to know some of the negative ways coon hounds have evolved. And one of the most common themes that I've seen and other people have seen is they seem to be a lot more high strung and they usually hunt very, very wide. And this issue, I think, is magnified more due to lack of hunting ground, and more people are losing permission in certain areas to hunt, and people are leasing properties for deer hunting, so people that hunt like us are running out of places to hunt. So the combination of that with people losing hunting ground and smaller and smaller tracts of land to hunt, along with certain lines of dogs that just seem to not want to hunt where you turn them loose and they kind of just go wherever they want, that could be considered one of the negative ways coonhounds have evolved over the years. Just kind of the lack of handle and how some people just breed strictly for getting deep and not necessarily hunting where you turn them loose and tree and coon. It's more about getting deep and getting treed, not necessarily just getting treed with coons. And that seems to be all pretty common knowledge, what everyone's experiencing, at least what they tell me, is there's just not as many places to hunt anymore and dogs hunt a lot wider than they used to. So those two combinations, along with people getting fed up with a lot of that, I think it's really going to correct itself in the future because I know a lot of people aren't really big fans of that. And that does not apply to a certain breed or a certain line of dogs. And that's why I really don't get into stereotypes much with my content and the things I say because I've hunted with enough dogs with enough different breeds to know that that doesn't really apply. I've hunted with some blue ticks that are really quick, accurate tree dogs. And I know the stereotype for them is being slower on track. And I've also hunted with some walkers that hunt pretty close and beat up a track quite a bit. And I'm not saying either one of those are a good or a bad thing. And also a lot of people consider mountain curs and feist, some of those smaller squirrel dogs, to be really close hunting dogs. And if you think feist and curs just hunt close all the time and don't really leave your feet, I really encourage you to go to a competition squirrel hunt because the squirrel hunts I've went on, I don't think I've walked to a tree that was under 400 yards. Actually, most trees in those hunts are 600 yards on average, I'd say. And I've actually pleasure hunted with plenty of squirrel dogs that actually went 1,000 yards or so and got treed. So that's kind of why I don't put that information out there much, because it doesn't really apply in all situations. And it's not really fair, especially to new people getting into this. They need to kind of learn for themselves so they don't get caught up in certain stereotypes and maybe miss an opportunity at missing a really good dog. And then the last part to Caleb's question, he says, Doing my Houndsman Spotlight series and working with top-notch houndsmen, what is something they all have in common that separates them from most hunters? And in my experience, the one thing that separates them from most hunters is a love and passion for dogs and hunting with dogs to the point where they sacrifice time with their friends and family and they sacrifice hours of sleep and they sacrifice money just to get a dog ready for a hunt and to give that dog a great happy life and to get it tuned up and keep it consistent and keep it going at a very high level. People that compete at a high level and promote stud dogs and travel the country and go to all these big hunts and spend thousands of dollars on entry fees are also spending time away from their wife and kids and sacrificing a lot to get there. And in my experience, there's no people or group of people out there that give dogs a better life and love and appreciate dogs more than people like that like the people I put in my Huntsman Spotlight series because they take a dog and they treat it like a member of the family and they give it the best life they possibly can just like any other good dog owner would but then they also let it live out its purpose that it was brought on this earth for instead of just leaving it sit in a pen or letting it get fat on a couch like some pet owners do they actually let it out get exercise and experience the world the way they should and all that comes with a price of sacrifice and And a love and willingness to do whatever it takes to make sure they get their dogs ready and keep them at a top level. I know a lot of people that have been competing at a very high level with dogs, whether it be coon and squirrel, that they usually end up missing a lot of stuff really important to them in their personal lives with their family. So it's pretty much the one thing that separates them from common hunters is just the almost obsession with it and love and passion for dogs and doing what they do. The next question comes from Garrett Carroll on Facebook. He wants to know what the favorite dog was I ever owned. And I've owned some really good dogs and I've hunted with some really good dogs with my dad and our family friends and then the ones I make for my YouTube channel. But the favorite dog that I have owned is definitely Jacks, And a lot of it has to do with him being a house dog and being raised in the house since he was a puppy. And the fact that he's one of the best coon dogs I've ever seen go. The combination of those two things really make Jacks probably the favorite dog I've owned and probably the most favorite dog I'll ever own. The next question comes from Robbie Reif on Facebook. He wants to know what my favorite 22 ammo is, and my favorite 22 ammo is the kind that has a lot of dirt on it floating around my hunting vest pocket that I'm scrounging around for after I missed a squirrel about 15 times. But to be honest, I don't really have a preference on 22 ammo. I just use whatever long rifles I have and just kind of go from there. My philosophy is if it's still moving, just keep firing away so it doesn't really matter what ammo you're using. As long as you keep pulling the trigger, it'll get the job done. The next question comes from Brandon Clark on Instagram and he wants to know how he gets his dog to load. And for me, the only thing I really have to do is just keep loading them in the box over and over again by hand. And usually they get it figured out. Like if I know some people will feed their dogs on the tailgate by like putting their food bowl up on there and kind of helping them up and that's how they teach them. But usually with me, I take my dogs to the woods enough that they get loaded up just about every day. So as long as you're just doing it consistent, like putting their front paws up on the tailgate and kind of helping them, they'll usually get it figured out after a while. So, just like anything else with training dogs, it's mostly just repetition with positive reinforcement. The next question comes from Doc Frosty X on YouTube. Says that I inspired him enough to get his first squirrel pup. It's a train cur walker mix. His question is for a six month old that it's sight chases and is very into squirrels, how do you prevent them from barking on the track? He barks even if he isn't sure it's there every five to 20 seconds. When he does see the squirrel, he goes berserk. He loves my channel. Keep it up. Sending appreciation from Oregon. And in, at least in my experience, like I said, all of these answers are just my experience and my opinion. If you have a dog that opens a certain way on track, there's not a whole lot you can do to change that because a lot of that is just genetics. The one thing I have seen correct it is once the dog does start training squirrels the more you shoot to it and the more fur it gets in its mouth, some of them start tightening up on track. Because that's really hard to correct. If you get a pup that's just starting, especially six months old, and it's barking on a squirrel track, it's going to be really hard to correct without making it think it's not supposed to bark at squirrels. So I would just say that if it does start getting squirrels treed, just knock it out and see if that helps. And just kind of go from there. Because the hounds I've hunted on squirrels that seem to be more open on the ground, the older they got and the more squirrels they had, shout out to them, the quieter they got on track and actually started hunting more like a squirrel dog. The next question is from Ron Wilson on YouTube. He wants to know what to look for in a pup, pedigree parents, what I look for in a training collar, what's the best all around dog box for hauling dogs around. Thank you for what you do. And what I look for in a pup is honestly, I look at the parents first. So that kind of goes into the next question or next part of his question. I like to go hunting with the parents first because then I have a better idea of what I'm going to get. Especially since I can kind of travel around and see what's out there. If I'm gonna get a pup, I'd like to see the parents hunt as much as possible. That way, you can see how they open on track, how they tree, just their kind of overall obedience. You can look for certain traits that may be desirable, maybe not desirable. So, I would just say if you're looking for a pup of any breed for anything, I would go hunt with the parents as much as possible. Or if the cross has been made once before and it's been successful, hunt with the parents and then those pups that have started off of those parents to kind of see what you're going to get. And as always, if you're ever going to buy a pup or a dog that's started or finished by someone else already, do not just buy it. Go try it first for at least a few nights and try and see what it actually does before you give someone your money because dogs are not cheap. And in the next part of Ron's question, he wants to know what to look for in a training collar. And in my opinion, the best training collar on the market is the Dr. Pathfinder because you can't beat it for the money. It's the most affordable one out there. And in my experience, it outperforms the Garmin by far. The map quality is way better. The maps are way clearer. The functionality is better. It's more user-friendly. It does not drop coverage. It does not need cell service. For some reason, I'm still seeing people out there on Facebook saying that they don't have one or they got rid of theirs because they didn't have cell phone service. Well, you don't need cell phone service to track your dog. So that's a myth. And I actually have some exciting news to talk about later on in May with Dog Trust. Some big things coming up that I think you guys will be excited about. But I've hunted with guys that had the Garmins, the newer Garmins, actually on that South Carolina trip. And once their dogs would get to about 900 to 1,000 yards, they would lose coverage. I don't know anyone can justify paying that amount of money for a tracking system that loses coverage at a thousand yards i had my dogtra with me and i did not lose coverage once also with dog you don't have to worry about buying map cards or downloading maps or hooking up to a computer or anything like that because it's all on your phone and if you're listening to this and like basically every person alive nowadays you already have a cell phone and cell phones cost about a thousand dollars on average for a newer cell phone So you already have a handheld unit you're paying for that has access to the internet that can track dogs. So for me, it doesn't really make sense to spend money on a phone that can track dogs and then spend another $1,000 on another piece of plastic you put in your pocket that can track dogs that does a poorer job than Dogtra and then also paying for collars. So that's kind of my thoughts. I already have a little plastic screen in my pocket that hooks up to the internet that can track dogs with crystal clear maps and not lose connection and is very consistent and reliable. I don't really know why anyone would spend another additional $1,000 to do that with less results because as I've stated in previous videos and podcasts, the Garmin that I had at least, whenever you try and scroll across the screen, it would really lag and freeze. It had a really small screen. And all the people I personally hunt with and know that have been using Garmin for a while, their screens end up cracking or breaking over time. And they might not even crack. They're just like a little black line that goes across it and the screen goes out. And then you have to replace the screens. And that's just issues you don't have with Dogtra. And I'm glad I switched to Dogtra from my Garmin because I couldn't take it anymore. The functionality just wasn't there. It wasn't user-friendly. You had to hook it up to a computer, which I don't have internet at my house. So I would have to go somewhere to do that. And it just, it didn't really make sense. It was good when it came out like 12 years ago or 50, whenever it was. It was nice then, but now with Dogtra, there's really no reason to get anything else. And like I said, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming with Dogtra that I can't get into yet. But, but when I'm allowed to release the information, you guys will hear it. And if a company like Dogtra is willing to reach out to me after I got a tracking system from them and sponsor me... And help promote my content and coon hunting and squirrel hunting and all the sport that we love. That should really mean something because I'm just an average guy like you who loves coon hunting and squirrel hunting and working with dogs. So that says a lot about them as a company and their continuing support really means a lot to me. And I'm really excited to share with you some of the big news in the future. And then the next part of his question, he wants to know what the best all-around dog box for hauling dogs is. And as many of you have seen, I have a box on my four-wheeler and I also have a box in my pickup truck. And I'm not affiliated or sponsored by either of the companies that make those boxes. But the box in my pickup truck is actually an Evans Custom dog box. And I've had that box for 12 years. I bought it brand new at Autumn Oaks. It was $350 when I bought it, which is crazy to think how expensive all the dog boxes have gotten now because of inflation and cost of prices and stuff. But it's like brand new still. It's really nice. It's heavy duty. It's good for the winter. It's good for the summer. And it's my favorite box that I've ever had. It'll probably last the rest of my life, honestly, because it literally looks brand new just like the day I bought it and I've had it for 12 years. Even out in the elements in the back of my truck, it's still doing just fine. And that's black diamond plate with two holes and also has top storage. then on my four-wheeler, that box is actually made by Zeps. It's a single hole dog box. It's vented. It has a removable door for the winter time and it also has like a sliding vent on the side. And it weighs probably like 15 to 20 pounds max. It's super, super light. It has a handle on the top. So you can just take it on and off with one hand easy, and it's really good size. It's not too big. It's not too small, and with it being light, it's good for four-wheelers and stuff like that because if you put a heavier box on the back of a four-wheeler, it can be dangerous causing it to tip or lean, and that thing is just really nice. And if you want to see that, I posted pictures of that on my Facebook and my Instagram, and it's also in some of my YouTube videos as well. The next question comes from Josh French on YouTube. He says he's new to the whole hunting with dogs. He just got a cur pup started training on speak, come, and simple commands. His question is, how long can you work a pup before they get tired? It seems like he's about 30 minutes, and then he gets pretty tired. So then I went on to ask him how old it is. He says it's 11 weeks old. And honestly, with pups that age, it's not necessarily a tired factor in my experience. If they're that young, it's mostly just an attention span issue, and I wouldn't really get too upset or worked up about it. It's good just to socialize with puppies that are that young, but I wouldn't expect it to do much at all until it was closer to five or six months old. Then you, I can get more serious with like obedience type training, but they're just super, super young. 11 weeks is really, really young. So, so it sounds like you already know how long you can work with it before it kind of gets tired or kind of gets over whatever you're doing. So I would just pay attention to that individual dog and just do obedience training like you're doing. And if it starts losing interest, don't force it because then you could cause some problems or maybe create some bad habits down the road. Just introduce it to things you want it to do gradually and let it grow and mature naturally as a dog. Next question comes from Doc Frosty X on YouTube. What He wants to know what my three top e-collar tips and tricks are. Do I tone train my dogs to come or light stimulation? And one of my f- most favorite things to do with an e-collar is when you get a pup that start just starting, either he's treeing or might, maybe not even treeing, but if you can tell he's checking trees or going on trees, you can look on the dog tree, especially zoom in really, really close, and you can tell the exact tree that he was on. And you can walk in there and check that tree and see if there's a coon or a squirrel in that tree. And if there is, you can put him on it and encourage him. And that really helps him mature a lot. Being able to tell where a dog barked and maybe attempted to tree, but just wasn't confident enough, and put him back on that tree and help them finish it and get him really fired up on it. To me, that's very, very valuable. So that's one of my favorite uses for tracking collars, along with just knowing where your dog is. And then in my experience, my dogs, I don't know if just how I work with them, but If I tone them, usually they come. I don't usually have to work with them all that much. When I'm in the woods, if I want to catch them for some reason, I usually just verbally call them, and then while I'm verbally call them, I'll also just tone them, so they kind of associate that from the beginning. I don't work with them a whole lot in the yard with tone breaking and stuff like that. I do most of that type of training in the woods, and it seems to be working well for me. So as long as you teach it to come and understand its name and come when you call its name, if you introduce the tone as you're calling its name, it'll learn to come when you tone it. Next question comes from Jacob McGinty on YouTube. He says he's new to the game, and he has a plot female that he really likes and hunts hard. His buddy has a good walker male. Is it frowned upon in the coon hunting community to crossbreed dogs? And at least in my experience, the biggest problem people have with crossbreeding is when people lie about it. If people are falsifying papers and breeding dogs and saying they're full-blooded walkers or full-blooded blue ticks, whatever they are and they're actually crossbred dogs, I think that's where the biggest issue lies. As long as you're honest with it, I think most people don't care all that much. I know some people don't like it, but I think just in my opinion, the general perspective is people just want honesty in papers. That's the biggest thing is they don't want lying. They don't want falsified papers. They want whatever name is on their dog's papers to reflect what the dog actually is. Next question comes from Brendan Henry. He says he has a couple of started dogs. One is at a training pen, and he says they're both treeing curs his question is, what strives me to become a better hunter for me and my dogs? Well, for me, I, this is how I was raised from a very, very young age. So this isn't necessarily just something I do. This has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I've been hunting with my dad and my uncles and our family friends for literally over 25 years now, and I'm 31. So as long as I can walk and as long as I can remember... This has been basically a huge part of my life. So that's, and now that I have children of my own, I really want to make sure I have good dogs, continue the tradition that started long before me and continue that down the road with my own kids. And I think that's a pretty big motivating factor too, is my children and making sure that they continue what my dad taught me and what his dad taught him. And we keep having dogs in these woods that we've been hunting for over a hundred years. I actually made a post on Facebook earlier this week, kind of talking about this. My family has been hunting the same woods and tree and coon and squirrels with dogs for over 100 years now. Where my parents live is actually a mile from where my dad grew up, and that's where they live now, and that's where I grew up, and now I live about a quarter of a mile from them. So consistently for over 100 years since the late 1800s, there's been a stark out in the woods with a dog, tree and coon and squirrel. So that's a huge motivating factor for me, knowing that there's people alive right now in my family that love what I do and knowing that my ancestors are smiling down, continuing on doing what they did many, many years ago. I just love hearing dogs tree. I love hearing dogs bark and I just love being around dogs. And since I start my own pups, it gets extremely, extremely frustrating when you get dogs that aren't very good or they don't know what they're doing But when you get one of those good ones that really starts coming on and you can hear it open up on a track for the first time or hearing it come tree for the first time, words can't describe how amazing that feels. So that's just kind of who I am and where I come from. So that's just a part of my life and who I am and who I'll always be. And that's pretty much what motivates me is continuing that for me and for my dad and for my kids and just letting the tradition live on. Next question comes from Simon Fry on YouTube. He asks what I do when a younger dog slick trees. This goes along with basically all my philosophies with young dogs. They're a young dog for a reason. They're inexperienced. They haven't been alive long. There's just learning. You can't really punish them a whole lot. And it really depends on the age and experience of the dog. If it's just trying to tree and it doesn't have something in the tree, it may have just screwed up on the track. So you can't really correct it a whole lot. You have to let it figure it out on its own. You can help them out along the way. But if it's a year and a half, two years old, and you've been hunting it hard, and it's slick treeing, that's a different story. But if it's a young dog that's slick treeing, you really gotta be careful if you're gonna correct it. The next question comes from Tucker Harvey. He wants to know how long it takes my walkers to leave and start hunting, and wants to know if it's something I do if it comes naturally. And this kind of goes back to the audio clip that's in my intro from Ricky Bryant. He says the same thing basically as what my experience has been. You can't force a pup to do something. You can't force it to tree. You can't force it to take off. It has to just come naturally. And in my experience, if the dog's mature and ready, if, as long as you just take it to the woods and let it just do its thing, it develops naturally and kind of takes off on its own. There are stages with certain dogs where they don't really venture out much, but you just got to get them in the woods and get them experience. That's why a lot of people, when they go to start pups, they just let them run loose in the yard or on a farm or someplace like that and just let them develop and kind of explore naturally on their own because that's how they make progress. It's just getting time in the woods. They're not really going to make any progress being in a pen because they're not really doing anything besides laying around. So as long as you get them out and just get them exposure, doing what you want them to do, they'll kind of come on naturally. And for me, the age that my walkers start doing that has been anywhere between 6 months to 14 months. Every dog is different, so you can't really gauge off of my dogs or even dogs that you've had. You just got to go with the hand you're dealt and just work with the dog that you have and be there for him, and help guide him along the way as he matures at his own pace. Next question is from Hollabread Kennels on YouTube. He wants to know how I get pups started on their own. Well, with pups, usually I'll if I get a pup as a puppy, I'll just work with it in the yard, and play with it, and get it socialized, and just help it develop socially, just like a kid should be. If you just isolated a kid and didn't socialize with it, it would have a lot of developmental problems, just like a dog. If you have a puppy or a pup, And it doesn't get time to spend with people or around other dogs. It might have some social issues. So just socialize with it from a really early age. Play with it. Work with it in the yard. Maybe teach it how to load. Get it used to riding in vehicles. And then once it gets older and starts showing you it's more mature, I would say closer to eight months, nine months, then you could start taking it to the woods. If it, for some reason, is showing you signs of maturity, like it wants to venture off and acts really bold from an earlier age, you could take it to the woods then. But usually that's just what I do as I'll just mess with it in the yard and then I'll just start hunting it in places where I know if it's a squirrel dog, I'll take it out in prime time when there's squirrel everywhere and just kind of walk it around. And if it, even if it doesn't leave my feet, I know where squirrels live and I can just walk them up pretty close to a squirrel and they'll usually see it or smell it. Or if it's a coon, I like taking them out when there's mawberries on the trees or the corn's getting ripe or there's beans in and the ag fields, just taking places where there's gonna be game. If you're starting it on Coon, take it in those places and just walk it around and give it a chance to get on a track or see one or smell one or just just let it have every opportunity it can to develop. And usually with time, if it has it naturally, it'll have it and start doing it on its own. Next question comes from Lucas Emerson. He wants to know how to break a dog from covering, and then once you get to that once you get that done, how do you get to stop coming in around like the tree a hundred yards instead of just going on? So if you're not sure what covering means, what he's asking there is when you're hunting with another dog, like if you go hunting with a buddy and he has a dog and his dog trees, how do you stop your dog from stopping hunting and going and just treeing with his dog and covering him? And for me, this is never an issue because I don't hunt my young dogs with older dogs. I don't really hunt any dogs with another dog until they're really consistent because what a lot of people do is they hunt them with older dogs and then they don't necessarily develop on their own they solely rely on the older dog and they end up just running and chasing an older dog. Or if they're hunting it during kill season and you're shooting a lot of coons out to them, even if you're hunting by itself, if you shoot every coon that dog trees, it starts associating dogs treeing with coons falling out in a tree and then they want to just get on the action every chance they can get. So the way I hunt kind of stops that from the beginning. And the best thing you can do is prevent it from happening before it even starts to become an issue, just by the way you hunt. And this seems to be an issue with people who shoot out every coon of dog trees. It'll start covering other dogs, trying to get in on the action. Or when you go to turn it loose after tree to coon, if you can't shoot it out, it keeps going back to the same tree, and that becomes a huge problem. So you need to be very selective with the coon you shoot out to it, and you need to not hunt it with other dogs so much. And this is one issue why I really single out my pups. Basically, from the time they're born until they're finished dogs, I don't really hunt them much with other dogs because... I hunt by myself most of the time. I just pleasure hunt and go out when I can. So I can't rely on having other dogs with me. And in my opinion, that's what makes the best dogs. And the people I've hunted with that have had the top dogs, they hunt their dogs by themselves because they want them by themselves anyway. They want them to be the best coon treeing dogs on their own. They can be. They don't want other dogs to impact the way they hunt. So my advice is to prevent it before it becomes an issue by hunting it by itself And being very selective with what you shoot out to it. Because if you hunt it with other dogs all the time. When it's young especially. And then if you're shooting every coon out to it. You're going to build those problems into it. And then once it gets to that point. It's very hard to get it corrected if you can. Next question comes from Jackson Hand on YouTube. He says he's new to dog hunting. And wants to get the dog and where to start. And nowadays with social media. I would get on Facebook. And just join groups. So if you're into coon hunting or score hunting. I'm not sure. But just join groups and kind of shop around and people advertise dogs for sale on there and just do your research. Like I said before, go hunting with parents if you can try and just research whatever cross is being made and just study and try and make the best educated decision you can before buying a puppy. So I would just narrow down what breed you want for whatever species you're going to hunt, whether it be coon or squirrel, narrow it down to that, join a group, meet some people and network, do research behind what bloodlines and crosses are being made and try and just increase the odds of getting a really good pup. And then just go from there. Next question comes from Dewey dove on YouTube. He wants to know the best way to keep a dog on a tree. And in my experience, if you have a dog that's doing that, you should probably tie it up every time at trees. And that goes back to the last question that was kind of like this. The best solution is actually prevention. When you're starting a dog, just make sure you tie it up every single time at trees And then you can start knocking stuff out to it. And if you do that a few times, then it'll get the picture that you're shooting stuff out to it when it gets there. And you're going to tie it up when it gets there. It wants to stay there. And like I said, don't shoot everything out at trees because then you're just going to end up teaching it to go back to every tree it's made until you shoot something out, which is going to cause huge headaches in the future. But just early on in its stages of development, when you are going to shoot out coon to them, just always make sure you tie it up. And that way it knows that when it trees, you're coming to get them and tie them up. And that just becomes a part of the ritual and just stick to it with positive reinforcement. Always stick it back on the tree if it leaves and always give it positive reinforcement and let it know that that's where it's supposed to be. Because a lot of that is just a confidence and experience issue. And I hope that helps. And I believe that's all the questions I got this week. And if I missed your question, just reach out to me and I'll answer it on my next episode. And I hope you're excited for some of these events coming up. I'm really excited to film them and bring you along for that experience. There's a lot of really cool things coming up. And as always, check out my YouTube channel, Clayton Stark at Stark Outdoors. And then my Facebook page, Clayton Stark Stark Outdoors. And then on Instagram, my handle is Stark underscore Outdoors. And that's where you can find more of my photography and my videos and kind of see this stuff instead of just listening to it in a podcast format. You can actually see it and come along for the ride with me, and I hope you enjoy it. Now I'm going to just give a shout out to my sponsors because I really appreciate them helping me out with everything they do and making it possible for me to do this. And I encourage you guys to support them because if they support someone like me, just an average coon hunter and squirrel hunter like you guys, that really means a lot. In this day and age, we don't have a whole lot of people on our side, so we need to support small businesses that actually support our way of life. So I'd like to thank Dog for Tracking Systems. I use their Pathfinder, and I couldn't. And in my opinion, it's the best tracking system out there. And I also like to thank Coon Dog Wear. They sent me some really nice clothes, and if you want some really nice Coon Dog clothing, they have really great shirts, sweatshirts, hats, all sorts of merchandise. So you can go to their website and their Facebook pages and check that out. Get some really neat clothes. Also, if you saw some of my YouTube videos. Back in the wintertime when it was really cold. If you're in the market for a high-quality dog house door, check out Gun Dog House Doors. It's a company that actually makes steel frame dog doors that have a shatterproof plexiglass material that they guarantee for life and they'll replace it if it breaks. And so far, I've been using them for I think about five or six months. They are holding up great. And they're spring loaded so they shut fast behind the dog and in the winter time it doesn't let any of the heat out at all and it cuts the wind out and i noticed a huge difference in my kennel with keeping it warm and it's also just nice to have doors on my kennels that are guaranteed for life that you probably won't even need the guarantee because they're built so well and i really like their product and you can go check out their website gundoghousedoors.com as you've seen in my coon hunting videos big dog lights is a sponsor i've been using their hunting lights for about 15 years now I use the Big Dog Blitz and I actually took my wife out and my son out last week and they use some of my older Big log lights. They're super bright and they have every feature you could ever need. They have red, green and amber colored lenses. They also have walking lights, red and green lasers and a super bright spotlight. They're very comfortable and they last as long as you need them to. And also if you watch my coon hunting videos you'll see I have the Tree Shaker Coon Squalor. That's made by Bayou Legacy Game Calls. In my opinion that's the best coon squalor on the market. It looks really cool. It glows in the dark. That way, if for some reason you drop it, you can see it. And it sounds the best out of every coon squalor that I've ever had and used. And I've posted a few videos that really gets a coon looking and gets them up moving. And it does a really good job. And my final sponsor is Kentucky Coon or Hunting Supply. So if you need any hunting equipment, you can get with Cody Glancy and check out his stuff. He has a YouTube channel and also has a hunting supply company. You can check out on Facebook and a website. If you need boots, leads, lights, whatever you need, he has it. So it was great getting back on here and talking to you guys again. And I hope you're excited for some of these events coming up. I know I am, and I really look forward to hearing from you next week. He ended up treeing seven tenths of a mile. I had my light on coming in, and he had another coon. So turned him loose three times. He had three coons. <laughs> I love, I hello.